I V M. We live in a post-truth world. We've been told that air quality in Delhi has improved by over 30% in the last two years. But researchers have shown that there's no way to be certain about this. As Michael Bloomberg famously said, in God we trust, everyone else, please bring data. Welcome again to Peak Planet. In the first episode, we examined how the public discourse on air pollution has changed in recent years. The situation does not look pretty. Most of us are oblivious to the impacts of air pollution. We're seemingly faced with an insurmountable challenge. And in this episode, we discuss with scientists and technology providers the ways to measure air quality and communicate the levels of air pollution. We also discuss data gaps and what alternatives exist. We spoke to Sarat Guttikunda, who is based in sunny Goa and runs Urban Emissions, which focuses on high-fidelity, science-based air quality analysis. He also offers the only service of its kind across the country, where he provides daily and real-time air quality forecasts for cities and regions across the country. We asked Sarath if the battle against air pollution is particularly disadvantaged by the lack of data or the difficulty in acquiring it. The short answer is yes. Um, and this has a two-part answer. I mean, we do get, I mean, this question gets framed in a couple of ways. So some people ask us, do we know enough information to act against air pollution? Even for that, answer is yes. But that answers only a small part of the story. So we can translate that and say that, okay, can you tell me four sectors that we should act on that are commonly contributing to air pollution. Then we say, okay, transport, industries, dust, and garbage burning. And that solves our problem. But the, the bigger question of, do we know enough of each of these sectors to make a prioritized action plan? For that, we need a lot of data. I think that's where the disadvantage comes. We don't know enough of each of these. Do we know, we don't know like how much of the pollution is coming from each of these sectors. Where is the, where are the hotspots? that each of these sectors are contributing to. And when is this pollution happening? Is it happening nighttime, daytime, seasonal, not seasonal, every day? So these kind of, uh, uh, this kind of information is very, very crucial. I think that's where the disadvantage comes of not knowing enough of each of these sectors. And is this, this is not about Delhi, I presume. Is this more about outside of Delhi and other cities and other... Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is not about Delhi at all. I mean, every city... In India, I think we can even generalize that every city in the world probably goes through the same process. We also posed this question to Professor Sagnik Day at the Center for Atmospheric Sciences, IIT Delhi. And this is what he had to say. This is the major reason I believe uh, the air pollution mitigation strategy is not getting the momentum. Uh, the reason behind, uh, just, just to give you some uh, statistics, ideally, according to WHO, we should have one monitor per one million population, which most of the developed country has, and China now actually has uh, almost two monitors per one million population. Unfortunately, India, this number is one monitor per seven million population. So we are way, way behind. They estimate that we need about 4,000 monitors across India to provide reasonable coverage. The national capital territory of Delhi, a city of nearly 20 million residents, boasts of more than 15% of India's monitors. That's a hell of a lot for just one city. We estimated that uh, 
in this is a collaborative effort with uh, Dr. Sharad Gutikunda and various other uh, international folks. Uh, we need at least 4,000 reference monitors to Suse uh, to salvage these situations, and which, uh, in my opinion, will take around 4,000 to 5,000 crore Indian rupees, which is a very big, big money. And that's where actually the challenge comes because when you talk about air pollution, two things are there. Uh, without data, bulk of the people have this idea that pollution is just Delhi's problem. Clearly, which is not. In fact, it is a pan-India scale problem. So that mindset is not there simply because there is no uh, ground-based data in most part of the country. And second thing is that because we do not know what is the magnitude of the problem, all our solutions are sort of Delhi-based. What we are measuring is actually not enough to support some of these stories. I mean, uh, we, we have enough inner cities in India where we have only one air quality monitor. I mean, that's in any statistical world, in any mathematical world, that's not, uh, we can't even count that to make any statistically significant uh, story to say whether its pollution has gone up or gone down. I mean, I can put that monitor in a garden uh, in the city and say that, hey, see, there is no pollution. And I can put the same monitor next to a road and it will tell me a completely different picture. So, uh, the, the idea of are we focusing on monitoring uh, more than before, yes. But are we doing enough monitoring to build a coherent story, then no. So far, we have spoken about devices that are called reference monitors. And these cost a fair bit, anywhere upwards of 1 crore rupees. And clearly, there's never enough money for all good things in life. This is where the work that Sagnik does comes in. Uh, so in the developed country, as you said, yes, they have a lot of... Uh, ground-based monitoring, so to say, but still satellite data are useful uh, at least, you know, in the data gap area. Even in US and various other, you know, like Europe, China, also there are data gaps. Now, having said that, uh, why satellite-based uh, monitoring is very important is that, you know, you can get this specially continuous data, plus also, especially in the context of India, what we completely lack is monitoring in the rural areas. And, and this has happened because we had this perception that, you know, perhaps the rural areas are not polluted, which is completely wrong, actually. So we really do not know, even if you ask these questions to any expert or anyone, like what is the background pollution level in India? Nobody has this answer. What, what do I mean by the background pollution level is simply that, let's say if I today stop emitting anything from any anthropogenic or man-made activities, still there will be some PM level because of the natural dust and stuff like that. So what is that level is not known yet. So unless I know what is the background level, how can I act upon, you know, you know, reducing this thing? So that's where actually satellite data fills the gap. But I must remind you at this point is that in the current legal framework though, only the reference monitors are sort of accounted. So in my opinion, we can get a cue from the satellite data and if we find that you know some certain place and as I said because we have 20 years of data now we I think we should utilize satellite data also intelligently to expand the future monitoring we should not just put monitoring uh, here and there uh, based on the logistics and that's again you know another benefit of having the satellite data right Fantastic. So we've heard about reference grade monitors and using satellite data to supplement it. But surely there's something in between that's more accessible to the average Joe. 
And this is where low-cost sensors or monitors come in. We spoke to Rohit Bansal, who is a co-founder at Pure Logic Labs and is the driver behind AQI.in, a portal that captures air quality information from more than 400 low-cost sensors deployed all over the country. We asked him to tell us what differentiates low-cost sensors from these reference-grade monitors. So in sensors, now one can buy a good low-cost light-scattering sensor for about $30 to $40, a reliable one. That will give you pretty similar reading to a monitor, to a sensor that is US EPA approved and can cost you somewhere around $15,000. The difference that I feel is a $15,000 sensor was made 20 years back. And as we evolve, technology evolve, people find out how to make things cheaper with similar or much more, even more reliability. And that's how I feel now we are going into that direction where sensor does not really have to have a really high price tag to give you the assurity of accuracy. What Rohit is saying is that there are devices that can cost you in the vicinity of 15 to 20,000 US dollars that are approved by the US EPA which is the environment regulator in the US and a standardized body at that and can give reliable values for particulate matter concentrations. What we need is something that is a lot cheaper and is more ubiquitous, which can fit into every home, really. When it comes to sensing for gases like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides, we're not quite there in terms of reliable low-cost monitors. I can say low-cost that was manufactured three years back. If you compare it with something that was manufactured last year, there's a lot of difference. There's a lot of refinement and betterment. So if there was a difference, R-square of, let's say, 60% before with the low cost and BAM, now that has been brought down to almost 90% or more. So people are working towards low-cost monitors as well, and they're trying to make low-cost as accurate as a reference-grade monitor, but there is a possibility that even the reference-grade monitor is not giving you correct data because you need to, the maintenance that is required for a reference grade monitor is way higher compared to a low cost monitor. You need to have a person dedicated towards the monitor whose job is just to make sure that the data which is coming from the reference grade is right or not. So there is a possibility that even the reference grade that we have might not be giving you the correct data. A lot of the air pollution is driven by economic activity. However, we often notice that even just over a day, air quality dips tremendously, though not much has changed in the way the city functions. We asked Sarat, what are the important factors that influence air quality? So one thing that immediately comes to mind is, of course, weather. So if it rains, if it rained last night, so today morning will be really, really nice. It's fresh and you want to go for a walk and feel the freshness. So weather really makes a huge difference. Uh, I mean, in India, if you're in the northern belt, I mean, this is April, uh, we will see some dust storms passing through and uh, that really changes the whole kind of situation. And generally, we want to have an understanding of what are the different types of uh, sectors that are contributing within the uh, air quality in the city. If the city stands alone at a coastal area, so you have a very, very different 
picture of uh, the air quality. So you may have a huge power plant, you may have a huge port, but their contributions are lessened because of the sea effect. But if you come to a place like Indo-Gangetic Plain, on top of the weather, and we have such close, dense of cities, they're all feeding each other. So when we want to talk about air quality in a place like Meerut, there's no way you can't talk about air quality in Delhi because Delhi is contributing to Meerut, Meerut is contributing to Delhi because of the close proximity. So your weather makes a huge difference, your geography makes a huge difference, and then the kind of commercial and commercial activities that are happening in the city makes a huge difference. Right. And when you say weather, are we looking at wind speed? You know, there are, you know, for people who work in the air pollution area, for example, temperature is one part, wind speed is another. Again, is this issue of, you know, air pollution in the winters in Delhi, is that particular to the geography where India, where Delhi sits or the, you know, the Indo-Gangetic plain or do you find this issue in many places in the winters? Um, and this is a very, very common phenomenon and technically we call it inversion and you see it everywhere. And if you look at uh, inversion layer heights, even in a place like Chennai, you will have a similar pattern. But the, the range of that inversion is very less in a place like Chennai compared to any of the cities in the Indo-Gangetic Plain. So it's not just the temperature, uh, but it's the, you know, the, the precipitation patterns and the, and the wind speeds. All, all of these make a huge difference. So since we are on the topic of weather, so on the Indo-Gangetic Plain, we have a, another disadvantage as well. So temperature not only altering how the pollution can move within the region, but it also contributes to the pollution as well. Because temperatures drop so much, especially in the winter season, we have, uh, I mean, we have to take care of space heating. When we have a lot of uh, good section of population which needs space heating, and during the winter times, they basically burn wood or waste, coal, to keep themselves warm. And that actually adds an extra set of emissions in those months. So the temperature, one, very alters pollution which is already in the air, but also contributes to, uh, to the pollution as well. So one of the things that we commonly observe is that, you know, let's say today is a Sunday, you know, and air is reasonably, not, not a Sunday, let's uh, say it's a Tuesday. Right? And the air is reasonably good in terms of just the quality. You know, the measurements are all fine. Um, presumably the same activity that happened on a Tuesday will happen on a Wednesday, more or less. But then all of a sudden, right, air quality dips terribly, right? And everybody assumes that a lot of the air quality is driven by the weather and not so much by the activity. And, you know, this led to people saying things like, uh, you know, Delhi sits in a dust bowl or, you know, India is sort of you know, predisposed to air pollution. What is your response to those kinds of arguments? So it's not about weather, it's basically the build-up. So uh, all the time there is there are emissions. I mean, we have traffic movement going happening 24-7. We have cooking happening at uh, household level or in the hotels or restaurants. We have garbage burning happening in and out. When you have because of the transport, we have dust movement happening all the time. So all this, once it comes out of their source regions, it's getting built up in the air. So Tuesday might have been a good day, but Wednesday, because of all this build up, it adds to it. Unless we have a 
way to either cut that emission for the next day or if it rains there's a, i think there's only two ways that it can actually dissipate uh, from all that build up that's happening sarath has been working on air quality for nearly two decades now modeling air pollution and providing forecasts and we asked him how have things changed in his world over this time 20 years ago the kind of modeling that we were doing uh, let's say we were running a dispersion model over india and uh, we wanted to do a one year simulation and to understand what the patterns are both spatial and temporal that would have used to take about a month if in a simple ibm for eight core cluster but now we have access to a system where which is 100 cores they are generally 100 times faster than what they used to be before and we are handling data which is i would say 1000 times more in terms of volume and we can do a same simulation in less than a day uh, so that has been the change in the computational world but at the same time the kind of data that's now accessible to do simulations like these has also really gone up um, i think enough proxies of enough uh, understanding of different sectors that are coming locally that we can use to build their inventory for a particular region there are several people uh, who are involved in uh, ground based measurements our group is pioneering in satellite based air pollution uh, monitoring there are other groups who are expertise uh, in uh, looking into modeling aspects of it there are also a lot of people uh, in the country who are working on epidemiology uh, in fact in fact there are doubts raised quite often that you know how much do we know about the health impacts of aerosols in india there are plenty of research done in india to show that air pollution impacts health there is no doubt about that so we have basically people working in all these things but what we need now actually you know integrating all this information and generate policy relevant information one thing i want to stress upon here is that what is the purpose of using this data from pollution perspective we can measure pollution every minute every second but is it really required in my opinion it is not really required to measure the data for every minute or every second what we want to measure or what is important rather is actually that to generate a proper exposure model now by exposure i mean is that how much pollution a human being is exposed to now when you talk about the ill impacts or the health effects of this pollution on human beings exposure matters we just need you know data of 24 hour average or per se you know daily average data so that's why i am saying even if you have the capability of measuring every second every minute i think we should not waste the resource and basically we should target to see how accurate the data when you average over 24 hours sagnik is effectively saying let's not get too caught up with all of this data it's more about what we do with this data that we have it's a complex scientific issue to study and we asked them if institutions in india are ready to take on the challenge of tracking and attributing air pollution and if we have the people with the right expertise to do this in the years ahead when compared to even 5 years ago forget 5 years even 2 years ago i think there's a lot more interest in this topic now uh, than before when when we were talking to some of the pollution control boards then uh, the the traction for having 
forecast, forecasting information accessible for them to use was not so much. But with the new NCAP, the National Clean Air Program, because as a byline they're saying, okay, we have to start talk, talking about forecasting systems, now a lot of institutions are prepping to, to get into that. Just to, have, just to have that mindset that we have to do this, uh, that gives a lot of push for institutions to focus more on that. So in that respect, I think mentally we are definitely ready. Uh, uh, the physical readiness, it's not a question anymore because you don't really have to buy servers to do these things anymore. I mean, we can rent a lot of uh, computational space. So that question is also gone. So right now is basically um, like technically be ready to, to do some of these uh, big simulations. And I think... We'll get there in a couple of years. More institutions will definitely do it. Right. So you talked about the physical readiness and the mental readiness. I mean, an important component in the physical readiness perhaps is the people, right? So do we produce nearly enough atmospheric chemists, for example, in the institutions in India? Yeah. And do you find that they're accessible and available more easily in the West? Right? So is that a challenge that will sort of really impede our progress in addressing the air pollution debate? No, that's a very good point. I think when I say physical radiations, I was thinking more only in terms of computers and computational space. Uh, that's nearly not enough to do any of this work. I mean, you really need to have, I wouldn't say one person, but you need a team of experts in uh, doing some of these uh, simulations. I mean, computers will run whatever we tell them to run, but there has to be somebody who has to tell them. Uh, that has been a challenge. The, we, I mean, we, we find similar teams, a lot more teams uh, doing works like these in, in the U.S. institutions and EU institutions and not so much here. Uh, I mean, we are hoping that that will definitely, hopefully change with more of the faculty members at the, at the institutions like IITs and uh, we're focusing more on works like these. Yeah, so so the, some of the groups are, whom you named, actually, we are already working in collaborations, and I fully recognize that, yes, we do not have that critical uh, mass, so to say, but what I believe is that we have enough expertise to cover the entire gamut of air pollution, you know, starting from monitoring all the way to health impacts. Mm. Having said that, you know, what we need today is a sort of an ecosystem, as you mentioned, uh, where everyone can come and contribute, and what I believe, you know, is the first step for is that openness in data. What I mean by uh, openness is that, for example, Central Pollution Control Board also made their data available. It is very difficult for, you know, a common person or any user to go into their website, find that data and use it in a meaningful way. Mm. Plus, there are so much data being collected uh, by individual efforts across the country, which are unutilized, in my opinion, because people are having, you know, fantastic instruments to... Uh, monitor not only PM 2.5. So another important thing, uh, rather what is missing in India, in my opinion, is uh, information about the type of pollution. Like United States has this fantastic network called Improve, where you know hundreds of sites they are not only measuring the PM 2.5 mass, but they are also measuring the compositions. In India, we never really discussed having any kind of such network. So. Is air quality forecasting relevant only for polluted locations or do places with clean air also carry out such forecasts? And more importantly, have forecasting and communicating air pollution levels really made a dent in the perception of the issue? 
and have governments gone about doing things differently uh, so that's not idea is not new and eu also does it very effectively and uh, when you have china i think started doing it about 10 years ago they started off in beijing and shanghai and then now they're doing it for all of china and i can think of a few asian cities like singapore uh, hong kong so they've been doing it for quite some time so with the byline in the uh, ncap so we have to now focus on quality forecasting and we are basically the program itself is going to learn from all these different examples how us has done eu has done and all the other asian countries are doing it so what we have built is uh, is something based on all the different examples that are happening so we release these results independently for everybody to use but the idea is basically to port some of these programs at the the pollution state pollution control boards or the city or the central pollution control board to take this forward but the idea is to be in a position to inform public what will be the pollution for the next 2 3 days and whether it's coming from local sources or it's coming from uh, outside the region because of the weather phenomena like dust storms or is it seasonal because of the fires so we will be able to tell that if we have a program like this so that's the whole idea Finally we asked Sagnik what he thinks is needed to materially change air quality in the country Content are one big thing which is missing in India is the involvement of citizen science mm. uh, because whatever research the researchers like us are doing uh, some of them are reaching to the public some of them are not reaching but still i do not see you know people getting actively involved in air pollution dialogue so this is what i think should improve in india so this to sort of you know take your uh, cue on uh, citizen science so what exactly is it that you've seen for example in the west maybe where you've you know spent significant amount of time in your research phase when you say citizen science is missing yeah so uh, in us for example what i've seen is that you know even at the school levels uh, there are proper discussions mm-hmm. then uh, school college university uh, students they take part in various sort of air pollution campaign measurements uh awareness creations and all these things of late what i notice is that we are having too many workshops in my opinion what we should do is actually we should have a training workshops because what happens is that people come they present their work they discuss uh different data gaps and all and they go back can we really analyze the data so we should have more training workshops focused on each of these aspects so i think we have enough evidence today uh to start acting now there is debate for example about the uh, estimation of the health impacts whether let's say you know uh, 1 million person is prematurely dying versus there's a half million the debate is there actually how accurate is the estimate but there is no denying that yes there is considerable health burden of air pollution so there you have it from our very own scientists watch out for forecasts and take appropriate preventive action based on what the air quality is outside and if you're really worried about the air quality in the area you live in invest in a good low cost monitor and keep the conversation alive in the neighborhood while the eye in the sky will soon play a much more important role in informing citizens across the country we need to ensure that our efforts on ground are increased and we need to strengthen our pollution control boards that's enough data talk for now in the third episode we look at institutional roadblocks in making real progress on air pollution Thanks for listening. Thanks to Sarath Guttikunda, Sagnik Day and Rohit Bansal. Peak Planet is available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify and other platforms. 
You can know more about our work at cew.in or follow us on social media at cewindia. The modern world is obsessed with food and agriculture. Everywhere you look, new and exciting technologies are bringing food innovation to your street market, your grocery store, your doorstep, and your plate. From our quest for the perfect food photos to our rediscovery of ancient grains, quite simply, food has never been sexier. But guess what? The modern food system is broken. It's a major cause of climate change antibiotic resistance and global poverty so how did we get here and where are we going most importantly how are we going to feed 10 billion people globally by the year 2050 through better more sustainable means i'm varun deshpande and i'm ramya ramurthy and we work for the good food institute a global non-profit accelerating the transformation to a more healthy sustainable and just food system The next food revolution is here. On Feeding 10 Billion, we're giving you the inside view. Tune in every Tuesday.